Good morning. Welcome to Life on Ed. I'm your host, John Aberly. Today, my guest is a very special guest for me. He is an author. He is a motivational speaker. He is a renowned hockey analyst. He is also a two-time Stanley Cup champion with the Philadelphia Flyers. And his my guest is Bill Clement. Bill, welcome to the show. John, thank you for having me. Oh, Bill, uh, I appreciate it. When I hear that resume, I sound like a pretty busy guy. Well, I was going to you know say what? to you, yeah, I mean, you did all this coming from uh, Buckingham, Quebec. What, what's it like to look back on that and go, I come from such a small town and look at all that I've accomplished? Yeah, I was born in a town called Buckingham, but I actually grew up in a town even smaller that was 14 miles from Buckingham. The reason I was born in Buckingham is that Thurso, Quebec, did not have anything even close to a hospital. Oh, so uh, that's why I was born in Buckingham. But, I, you know, John, I consider myself to be so fortunate in many ways. Um, my, my town had 3,000 people. It's out of nowhere. And it's a paper mill town. And I, I don't necessarily consider myself lucky for having to, to smell the paper mill every day. But I grew up in a set of four walls that was pretty extraordinary with the mom and dad that I was um, blessed to uh, to have and the way they brought me up. And one thing is a truth in life. We are all products of our histories. And I tell people that all the time. You know, we are all products of our histories. And I think our parents have probably more more influence on that history than anybody. So I was a lucky guy in spite of the fact that I had to breathe fumes from the paper mill every day. Well, Bill, you definitely have accomplished a lot in your life. You have written the book, Everyday Leadership, Crossing Gorges on the Tightrope to Success. I read the book. Uh, I have to say I found a lot in common with you in my own life. Uh, I think how you motivate yourself, how you motivate people is, is very genuine. And, and really, I think it, more businesses and, and bosses should take a look at the principles that you've outlined in how to motivate their people and get more production for their companies. But we'll get more into that um, as we go on in the interview, because it all kind of comes together here with you, your life, the book, and everything you're doing. But I want to go back to your family a little bit. Growing up, you know, in a small town, uh, I'm very familiar with paper mills. My first job uh, out of college, I sold grinding wheels to the steel and paper industry. So no I was, kidding. Oh, yeah. Very familiar with Quebec, very familiar with the, with the smells of a paper mill. And, well, and John, I should point out, too, that while I, you know, I, 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 at the expense of my town, I have a little fun with the, with the smell that, you know, the, <laughs> that the, the, the waste comes, that the waste delivers from a paper mill. Yep. The truth is, you know, I, I, for four years, from age 14 to 18, I spent every day from the day school ended till the day school started uh, at the end of summer working on a dairy farm and living there six days a week and working from 6.30 in the morning till 8 o'clock at night and earning, you know, 15 bucks a week plus room and board. But when I was 18 and the, and the mill could insure me, they didn't hire anybody that was under 18 because they couldn't insure them. Dangerous place. As soon as I hit 18, I worked for, for three summers in the paper mill. And boy, I'll tell you what, the pay scale went way up compared to the 15 bucks a week. So I, I might have fun at the expense of the paper mill, but boy, I'll tell you what, it was a good income for me as a teenager. It, it's a good income all the way, or at least it was, uh, maybe not you know, the last 20 years, but up until you know the last 20 years, it was right. definitely good skilled labor, uh, in particular up in Canada. And you know, you're always looking for paper, so there's always, always a job available. Yeah. But you know, your family, you, you come from, you know, you had your parents, then you had your brother and sister. Now, your, your sister was born with a disability. And I found this very interesting because 
as you write in your book, you felt very protective of her, which I think mm-hmm. is, is natural because I, I have a disabled sister as well who passed on. So I know that feeling. But how much do you think that set the tone for you for the rest of your life and how you engage with people? Because I think oh. you have a lot more compassion than most people would. Well, certainly a piece of the puzzle. My sister was born uh, with congenital deformities of her of her legs and had to go through multiple surgeries all the way in, in Toronto. I remember mom used to, to leave with her on the train and be gone for weeks at a time. Dad had to work. Um, and to this day, my sister now is in a wheelchair and has been for a number of years. Uh, but one of her legs was five inches shorter than the other. And, I mean, you know, she walked with a noticeable... A very exaggerated limp, and and also my sister only has two fingers on her right hand. Uh, her arm comes down, and it comes to a, a very small hand with two fingers, basically a thumb and an index finger is all she has on her right hand. And you know, it it sounds like a before you tell the story, or before I tell the story, it sounds like it's you know tragic, but it isn't tragic. Because we're first of all, we're the most adaptable creatures in the universe, and and my sister learned to play the piano. Her musical talent with her voice, and to this day, she plays in a key of F sharp, which is almost all black notes. And and people say, why do you play in the key of F sharp if they're on the phone with her? And she says, well, when you see me, you'll know why. Her right hand can't get down in between the the white keys to to make sure that she hits all the notes correctly. But but here's what the, the great takeaway from growing up with my sister. It's that regardless of the hand that we are dealt, there are ways, there are opportunities, there is, there is hope which no one can ever take away from you. There is hope that you can do something productive and successful and, and you know, something that perhaps even shakes the earth if you choose to, regardless of the hand that's been dealt you. And that, that's my sister. When I, I didn't like people staring at her, and, and everybody stared at her because she was so different and she, you know, her legs were deformed and she walked funny and she had two fingers on her right hand. And I used to, when I was a kid, and I'm two years younger than she was, I used to try to, to walk between her and the people that were staring at her so they couldn't look at her. The truth is, and she said this to me once years later, I said, you know what, didn't it bother you with everybody staring at you? And she said, you know what, I thought they were staring at me because I was pretty. And she really was. She's beautiful, and 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 she really is a beautiful person. And and gosh, she she could have been a you know a, a face model for uh, makeup. I mean, she was fantastic. That was her take on it. So I learned when you're dealing with the hand that's dealt you. You don't need help from other people. If it comes your way, you can take it. And the other thing that I learned is there are really no restrictions one way or the other. I mean, you, I tell people all the time, the only limitations you have are from your neck up. I don't care. You know, this is the greatest country in the world. And, and I, I will not say that to people from other countries. But in the United States, there are very few limitations for most people. Oh, I agree 100%. I think we start at the 50-yard line, so to speak, if you're born here in the United States. Right. I I think you, you know, there's no reason that you can't move forward. It really is self-restricting if if you step back and think about it. But, you know, I I, want to go into something with Canadians in general, hockey players, something I've seen as I've gotten older and I've been following hockey all these years. There's something different about you guys. There's something, an inner drive, uh, for the most part, a kind of a quietness, but a determination. I mean, you leave 
at 15 to go to juniors. Right. And I know that still goes on today up in the Canadian leagues. Right. What is and that I like? That's this, odd. When I made that team, John, at 15, because I don't even know if I mentioned this in the book, the first thing our general manager said, and this was a Chicago Blackhawk farm team, with all of the guys that made the team, our first meeting, he said, all right, anybody wants to wear a helmet, go home. Wow. He said, we're raising you to be men, and men in the NHL don't wear helmets. Well, they still aren't really wearing goalie masks at that point either. No, no, no. So, yeah, continue. Sorry, I just yeah, thought no, I'd throw that no, in there. Thinking about which, it's, which, by the way, hmm. explains why I played my first nine years as a professional. I spent 12 years as a pro, 11 in the NHL, and I spent the first nine without a helmet. And that might explain to a lot of people why, my behavior on certain days. <laughs> no, I think you got it down pretty good, Bill. I said the book... The book reads uh, as a story of your life right. that basically takes everything that you've learned and it applies it to a story relating to your life, showing how these principles can interact, right. in li- which I thought was great. I, I, I'm, I'm going to sum it up real quick, and I'm going to keep doing this, but the way I saw the book as I was finished, I saw your personality. I looked at it, and I summed it up this way, determination with compassion while gathering insight. Well, I think that's how you approach life. Um, I know I do, and I think that's why I was able to connect so well with you, you know, just mm-hmm. reading this book. What I liked is, you know, again, juniors, kids leaving their homes at such a young age, sure. going to play with men. Yes, I was playing against mostly mostly 17 to 20-year-olds. There were guys, a lot of guys on our team, 18, 19, and 20. And it was real. It was the real deal. And uh, yeah, th- thank you for those those kind you know comments about about looking oh. at things with compassion and, and insight. And I, I I like to think that I've been able to be objective enough and observe enough, and then become introspective enough to try to make it work for me and to learn from every situation. And I, and I think this is where the subtitle of the book plays in. And we can talk about the title, Everyday Leadership, yeah. and what that means. And the one thing it doesn't mean is a job title. Um, but the, the, the subtitle, Crossing Gorges on Tight Ropes to Success, is a very significant metaphor that existed in my life that I know exists in so many other people's lives. We come to every time I came to a to a, a chance to move forward. There was always a challenge, and I found myself metaphorically on the edge of this gorge. And when I left home at 15, it was part of it. I was scared to death in a lot of games. And gosh, even when I got to the NHL, I was scared in a lot of games. There were guys that were trying to take your head off. I mean, literally hurt you, break your bones every time you got on the ice against them. And I developed, you know, call me crazy, but I developed a disdain for getting punched in the face at a very young age. You know, I wasn't a fighter. <laughs> and there were guys that wanted to... They, when I played in Sorel, Quebec, when I was 15, it was a violent town. There was a lot of crime, prostitution, uh, drugs, gambling. Uh, you know, it was, a, it was a tough town in Quebec. And there were other tough towns like that. There were these... And our bench, people, fans could walk right behind our bench. It was an old arena that seated a couple thousand people. And it was a, it was a profit center. I mean, people were in this business to make money. It wasn't like and let's face it, college football, if people think that that isn't about money, they're wrong. It is. But oh, yeah. these were owned by businessmen. And I can't tell you how freaked out I was. The first couple of times, men would walk behind the bench and kind of whisper to our tough guys, I'll give you five bucks if you fight number seven. Jeez. 
And that meant that the next shift out, I'd watch, and our tough guy would grab number seven, and away they'd go, right? They'd drop the gloves. So here I am thinking, you know what? There are guys doing this in other buildings when we're on the road, and I wonder if my number's going to come up. And there were guys way bigger than me. So, so I would, there were a lot of times that I was scared. So I found myself on the edge of this gorge. And I could see performance success on the other side. I knew where I had to go and, and the, where I had to end up to be successful. And the gorge represents all of those things that push back against us. And everybody goes through them. Everybody has a fear of something, an anxiety, something that pushes back. You can feel it pushing back against you. It might even be procrastination. Maybe you're a classic procrastinator. That's what the gorge represents. And you stand there looking for an easy way to get across this gorge, and you realize there isn't one. There's just the tightrope in front of you. And the tightrope represents our courage, our persistence, our willingness to attempt to do something we're not quite sure we can do. And I realized later on, and I tell the story in the book about Dave Schultz, you know, the toughest guy in the NHL, he helped me understand that courage isn't an absence of fear. Courage is how we deal with it. And I found myself being able to get across some of the tightropes. And I have fallen, and people do fall. But that's what it meant to me to leave home at 15. I had to confront some fears to be successful. That's it. We are talking to Bill Clement today, two-time Philadelphia Flyers Stanley Cup champion, author of a new book, Everyday Leadership. We'll be back in a few moments. But is it time for dogs to have a social network of their own? So is it time for dogs to have a social network of their own? Is it time for dogs to have a social network of their own? Is it time for dogs to have their own social network of their own? Is it time for dogs to have a social network of their own? Good question. Man, you ask good questions. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. That's a great question. First time I've heard it on about 15 interviews. I'm very thankful to ask that. If you're looking for the latest in fashion, beauty, health, lifestyle, and entertainment with you unique and interesting guests and the questions that you're always wondering that no one asks, then tune into The Brin Project every Wednesday at 12.15 and every Saturday at 12. And you can stay updated with the show at facebook.com forward slash The Brin Project. That's The Brin Project on Wednesdays at 12.15 and Saturdays at 12. Hey, it's Matt from Rivers Monroe. Check out Soundstage on WCHE 1520 Thursdays from 4 to 5 p.m. with new host Mike, my good friend from Rivers Monroe, as he talks with upcoming local artists and musicians. Again, that's Soundstage every Thursday at 4 p.m. with Mike Monroe on WCHE 1520 AM, the talk of Chester County. At Matthews Paoli Ford, they're more than just a dealership. They're proud to be members of the Chester County community and happy to support the Westchester University football team. They can handle all your automotive needs from new and used cars and trucks to service, rental, and even collision repair. They've won Ford's prestigious President's Award for customer satisfaction for the last three years. Check them out online at paoliford.com or visit them at the point in Paoli. Go further with a new Ford car or truck at Matthews Paoli Ford. 
PAMatters.com is your source for news and reporter blogs from Harrisburg. Stay informed on the issues and the people who are making a difference in Pennsylvania. PAMatters.com is also your backstage pass to the inner workings of state government as you can interact with Governor Tom Corbett through our monthly Ask the Governor program. Visit the site today to enter your question for the governor. I'm Governor Tom Corbett. Please join me on Radio PA and PAMatters.com for a discussion on the issues facing our Commonwealth. Submit your questions or comment today. Then check back regularly for exclusive video clips featuring Governor Corbett addressing your concerns. Well, Gary, it's one of the things that I've been talking about. I think, Matt, you Chris, I'm sorry to hear that you feel that way. I'll tell you, if she thinks it's fraud, please have her contact the Inspector General's office in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. We'd be happy to take a look at that. There you go, Ruth. That's a good avenue for it. Uh, it comes to me for review. If, uh, if they don't get three, it doesn't come to me for review. Okay, so Sergio, there you go. It's a long process, but at least now you know where to get started. That's PA matters.com. Hi, this is Christy Yamaguchi, and you're listening to WCHE 1520 Radio. Welcome back to Life on Ed. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my guest is Bill Clement, two-time Philadelphia Flyer Stanley Cup winner. He has also written the book, Everyday Leadership, Crossing Gorges on Tightropes to Success. Bill, can you tell us where we can get a copy of the book? Yeah, people can get it. Uh, if, if anybody wants a copy personalized, the best way to get it is just to go to my website. Just go to BillClement.com, uh, C-L-E-M-E-N-T. And I always jokingly, because of, well, I say my lack of skill, um, <laughs> I, I scored 148 goals in the NHL, so it wasn't as if I was a complete waste of a uniform. Um, but I tell people that my name is Cement with an L in it, which is kind of descriptive of my hands when I played hands of cement. But yeah, they can get it on my website and there's a there's a, a little box that, that you just have to fill in uh, whoever would like it personalized and I'll be happy to, to send one out from my home office. But they're also available on Amazon.com. I didn't bother trying to get, get great penetration with the book right away, hmm. John. And I did it for a reason. I wanted to figure out how it all worked. I wanted to stay connected with people that were really interested in getting it. I wanted to be able to personalize them. So it was, it was all about trying to connect with people. The sales have gone really well. And one of the great thrills that I have in, from the book um, and from my speaking is that a, a portion of the proceeds from my speaking in the book go to a foundation that I put together to, to benefit two causes that are, that are pretty near and dear to us. My wife and I have three daughters, mm-hmm. and one of our daughters uh, has MS, has multiple sclerosis, and one of our daughters has Down syndrome. Mm-hmm. And they are the brightest shining stars, uh, along with our other daughter and our one son. They're the shining stars, they all are, of our lives. Um, so the proceeds of the foundation uh, will uh, be split up between uh, two groups to try to help uh, both of those demographics, people with Down syndrome and people with MS. You know, Bill, it's amazing if you step back and you, and you really think about it, and I'm pretty sure you have because that's the kind of man you are, having uh, grown up with your sister, that gave you such a foundation to to you know to be able to ha- you know have what you know deal with what your daughters have and be there for them. You, you don't know it at the time, but years later you go, geez, that's where I got that learning skill from, that life skill. I think you're probably right. Um, our our bag of skills, if you will, is full of those 
experiences that we had in, in our histories. And I think a lot of times, John, we don't even know they're there. No, I agree. You know, when you people say, you know, a tragedy or, or somebody is, you know, a death in the family, that you really don't understand and appreciate the strength that you truly have until you have to call upon it. And that's when all of those those other um, those those other life skills and life experiences that you can draw on them. They're absolutely and and listen. One of the things that I point out in the book, like, and I'm, I've been, I, I look at myself now, and I've been successful on on multiple fronts, and I would not, I would not be successful without a complete collapse and failure financially and business after I played hockey. Now, as I point out in the book, my first venture out of hockey, which is something that I didn't have to plan for. I worked hard at hockey. But when people say to me, well, why did you choose hockey? Mm. My answer is easy. I didn't choose hockey. It chose me. Yes. Right? I played as a, as a young kid. The next thing I knew, I was getting scouted by the Chicago Blackhawks, leaving town when I was 15. I ended up being drafted by the Philadelphia Flyers because of the way the system worked then. And away I went. I didn't have to do anything other than exert myself, then work as hard as I could, and God gave me a work ethic, and my parents gave me a work ethic, and then hope that things came my way, that I had the skill to get there. And I did. It was different when I retired. Way different. Well, Bill, you know, you, you come up through the ranks, come up through junior, say the Flyers, you know, they draft you, they bring in your first year is 71-72 with the Flyers, and they're just starting to become the Broad Street Bullies. What the NHL and the Philadelphia fans get to know uh, as the Broad Street Bullies is right. starting to form as you're there. And you know what, John? If anybody has, doesn't know, any, wants to know a little more about the Broad Street Bullies and can go and, and watch this, I believe it's still on demand. The HBO special, it was Broad great. Street Bullies. And I've had people that didn't know hockey. I've had people that hated the Philadelphia Flyers, like New York Rangers fans, that watched this HBO special and went, and, and, and let's face it, HBO doesn't, they don't screw many things up. They're great at what they do. They did an unbelievable docu, you know, an hour-long yep. documentary on the Broad Street Bullies. So please continue. I just oh, no, no, I saw it. want I, an insight can find it there. No, I, I've seen it twice. I mean, that's the age group I'm growing up in. I was right. uh, Seven, eight, nine, ten. When all of the the Flyers bully years were coming together, but you talked about adversity, and and I think for you, it, look, you can trace it uh, another step in it. Getting into the NHL, getting to the Flyers, an expansion team, only been around a couple years, basically got their asses kicked two rounds by the St. Louis Blues. Yep. Ed Snyder says enough. I'm not going to have my players get the crap beat out of me. They bring in t- you know tough guys. You got. You're, you're Dave Schultz, who changes the game. You've got yeah. your, you know, uh, Bob Kelly. You've got your Andre Dupont. But what the movie showed, the documentary, Broad Street Bullies, and what you also discuss in your book is the skill level was there, too. They just weren't Neanderthals on ice. There was a skill level, a, a teamwork ethic, right. and a leader in, in Shiro, Fred yeah. Shiro, that I don't think a lot of people really know all the dynamics that went into creating such a such an incredible time period for the Philadelphia Flyers. Where do you want me to start, John? Bill, you, you know, know something? You... you could start with the fact that you were right in the middle of it all. Well, <laughs> well, sometimes I was in the middle of it when I didn't want to be in the middle of it. I know. I see pictures. <laughs> 
but no, we had an interesting cast of characters. We had role players. And early in my career, I was a role player. I, I ultimately played in two All-Star games, one representing Washington and one representing the Atlanta Flames. But I was you know, an up-and-comer trying to find my way in the NHL, so I was a role player. But yes, we had skill, but we were mostly known for you know, riding into town, beating the crap out of the hockey team, drinking as much of the alcohol in the city as we could, and introducing ourselves to as many of the women that lived there, and then riding out of town on our, you know, our black horses with our black hats on. The truth is we had, we had talent, we had skill, we had goaltending, and we had an incredible coach. And I think it's because he coached the Broad Street Bullies that Fred Shiro was not in the Hall of Fame. And that's a tragedy. Never thought about that. Uh, he's, he won two Stanley Cups. He was incredibly successful. But his methods were uh, innovative. He went and studied what the Russians did. We were the first team in the NHL to have an assistant coach. And guys also, would just line up, you know. And to use video. Guys. And to use video. And you guys were the first to use video as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Absolutely. A lot of those things. But, the, you know, I, I tell a story about... I, here's what I think made us successful more than anything. And Freddie... The story about Freddie is an example that everybody really lived by. And I talk about being an everyday leader, regardless of your job title, being able to influence people so that you can manage an outcome. That's what everyday leadership is. I don't care if you're a group of salespeople or a marketing department or a bank or branch of a bank. It is having the ability to influence other people's moods, attitudes, behaviors, decisions. And we all have that power. And I describe that power and many different things we can do to have that influence. And once we understand it, we can manage an outcome. Freddie Shiro managed an outcome. And one thing I always talk about is that to be an, an ultimate everyday leader, you must be a giver and not a taker. And I think you can divide people into those two categories. You're either a giver or a taker. Fortunately, there are far more givers than takers. And I point out in my presentations and in the book that Freddie Shiro, I think, the ultimate act of giving is when you are willing to sacrifice or, or jeopardize your own personal safety or your own security, your job security perhaps, for a belief or a principle or a decision that you might have to make that you know is going to benefit the group, even if it puts you at risk. And I, I always think of the great men and women of our military when I think of sacrificing and, and jeopardizing our own safety. But you can do that even in, in the business world or in the sports world. I mean, blocking a shot is an example of doing that in oh, hockey. Yes. But Freddie Shiro, after we lost game one in Boston in our first trip to the Stanley Cup Finals, we were playing Bobby Orr, Phil Esposito, Johnny Busick, Wayne Cashman, Kenny Hodge. And we hadn't won a game in, in seven seasons in Boston. And we had to win one because we didn't have home ice. So we're tied going into the last minute of the game. And we would have taken overtime. But Moose DuPont, you referenced him, he got tackled by Wayne Cashman. And Kenny Hodge came swooping into the corner when Moose was in a pile in the corner. <laughs> and he grabbed the puck and coming right down the middle of the slot, wide open, the great Bobby Orr. Kenny Hodge, bang, tape-to-tape pass, and Bobby Orr rips one past Bernie Perrant's glove, and we lose game one. But we went back to the hotel, and our hotel had a golf course around it. We were staying out of town. Went back for something to eat. The next day was an off day, and Freddie Shiro said, okay, guys, listen up. And Freddie had a good sense of humor. His nickname was The Fog. 
I think it should have been the chameleon. The fog didn't do him justice. But if you got close enough to Freddie, you noticed that his glasses looked like they hadn't been cleaned in three months. <laughs> so you know why he was called the fog. So Freddie says to us, and he had a great sense of humor and a dry sense of humor. He said, okay, listen up, guys. Tomorrow, you can each go down, all go down to Boston Garden and practice for an hour, or you can play nine holes of golf on this golf course that's right outside the hotel door and turn your scorecards into me. And he would, put, he would always add things like, turn your scorecards into me. What the hell was the difference if we turned our scorecards <laughs> in, right? Freddie always, always had a little tail that he put on the end of things. And we looked at each other like Freddie had three heads. What co- coach in his right mind was going to let a team golf on an off day in the Stanley Cup Finals? Well, we voted, and it was unanimous. We golfed. So come game two, you know, the day after we golfed, and we all turned in our scorecards, here we are, we're down a goal going into the last minute of play, and poetic justice was absolutely delivered because Moose DuPont took a shot from the point, and it went through a crowd and found its way into the net, and we forced overtime, and Bobby Clark won it early in overtime, so we had our win in Boston. We went back to Philadelphia. We won games three and four. We laid an egg in game five, but came home for game six, still up three games to two in the series. And we won one to nothing in game six, and we won the Stanley Cup. And you know what, John? It wasn't until years later that I started to think about the chance that Freddie Shiro had taken with his own coaching career by letting us golf. I said to myself, oh my God, what would have happened if we'd lost 9 nothing in game two and lost the series in four or five games? What would have happened to Freddie's career? Would he have been vilified and criticized? Absolutely. Would he have lost his job? Would, he have, would it have ended his coaching career? Probably not. But it certainly could have created a roadblock for him moving forward in his career. And before Freddie passed away in 1990, I, had, I wanted an answer to that question. And I went to visit him, and, and I knew he wasn't doing well. So we had a nice visit, and I said, Freddie... I also have to ask you a question that's really been haunting me. I said, weren't you afraid of what this decision, remember the decision when you let us golf in 1974? What would that have done to your career? I said, weren't you worried about that? He said, yes. He said, I was. But he said, I knew that you guys were in shape. It was the bond that you shared. It was the togetherness. That's what made us a great team. And I wanted to continue that. And it wouldn't have happened in just having one more practice. I thought that doing something like golfing would create that and help keep that bond, keep you guys glued together the way you need it to be. But he said, yeah, I was scared. And that's what we're going to touch on, Bill. There's a second part of this story that's yep. in the book that I want to hit with you once we come back from the break. You're listening to Life on Ed. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my guest is former Philadelphia Flyers, Bill Clement. We are talking about his book, Everyday Leadership. We'll be back in a few moments. Wish there was a local hardware store that provided friendly, personal service, helping you find exactly what you need. Get you in and out of the store quickly with prices that meet or beat the big box stores. Well, look no further than Ace Hardware of Westchester. It'll soon be time to take the student and your family back to school. And did you know Ace Hardware is an official U-Haul truck rental location? They have vans, trucks, and tow dollies in a variety of sizes. And don't forget the August Hot Buys professional-grade decorative duct tape, which is very popular with the teenage girls in a variety of patterns 
patterns, 50% off at only $3 a roll. 18-gallon clear tote storage bins, two for $12, or 72-quart size, two for $14. And a 5-in-1 inflatable chair bed with air pump, a special purchase price, $39.99. That's a 50% savings. Ace Hardware of Westchester is located on Strasburg Road, just past the Daily Local News, and they're open seven days a week for your convenience. Have a question? Call them, 610-344-4811. Ace and Ace Hardware of Westchester is the helpful place. One in four girls and one in six boys are sexually abused before age 18. It's done in secret, but the beginning stages of sexual abuse often happen in public. It's called grooming, how offenders gain trust of kids and the adults around them and create opportunities to abuse. You can learn to recognize these moments in the early stages of child sexual abuse and intervene. PCAR, the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape, has the facts on how to stop sexual abuse before it happens. Visit HeroProject.org to learn how you can protect a child. Hey, this is Alice Sweeney from Days of Our Lives and The Biggest Loser, and you're listening to WCHEAM. Welcome back to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my guest is Bill Clement, former Philadelphia Flyers, two-time Stanley Cup champion. He's also author of the book, Everyday Leadership, Crossing Gorges on Tightropes to Success. Bill, can you tell us again how to co- get a copy of the book and a personalized copy as well? Yeah, personalized copy. Uh, people just have to go to BillClement.com, um, and it'll be right there, right there in front of them. They can just fill in the little box that says, who would you like it personalized to when they're paying with either Google Wallet or PayPal, and uh, I'll be happy to get one one uh, personalized and, and get it on the way or amazon.com if somebody prefers and I'm going to say it again as I said earlier in the show uh, I've been in sales and marketing for over 20 years myself right now I handle business development for an environmental company so I've read a lot of books on leadership sales skills and so on and so forth but this definitely shot into my top three uh, your book Bill thank you lot- John I, I can't tell you and you know what it's, it's nice of you to say that on the air I, I oh, appreciate true, that but, but hearing somebody and that's my takeaway it's it's not about gross sales with me. I, I, I like to do well for the foundation, but when somebody says to me, you know what, I was really moved by your book, or I was able to learn from it, I was able to take so much from it, not only that, it was an easy read and it was entertaining as I went through it, that's the payoff for me. And it's like when I speak, it's not the paycheck at the end of the speech, it's having somebody walk up to me and say, you just touched me deeply. So thank you so much, I really appreciate that. Bill, I think there's a lot of dynamics that go into it, to be honest with you. I think the fact that you are a former professional hockey player, but I think the key to this is hockey player, a different kind of lifestyle, different kind of upbringing than what we think of as professional athletes here in the United States. Also, the fact that your life, again, you put everything you learned to every aspect of your life, and it goes through it chapter by chapter, and I want to get back into, we were talking about Freddie Shiro, his leadership skills, he was different. He gave you guys a lot of freedom uh, he allowed you to bond. He didn't put constraints. He did little weird things, though. We'd call meetings at 11 o'clock at night. Yeah. Make sure everyone got there. Then you all broke. Well, I guess, you know, who goes out after that? Some might. Probably most don't. Right. But what I liked was then you followed it up with what you consider to be the greatest leader you've ever been around, uh, Bobby Clark. Right. Uh, and, and before I get to Clarkie, yeah. I will tell you that Freddie called those meetings out of respect for us. Freddie did not want to do curfew checks. He didn't want to call rooms. He didn't want to go door to door. Some coaches did that. 
And Freddie wanted to, and there were guys when I first got to the Flyers, and Freddie was here already, that were traded because they didn't acknowledge that respect, and they abused the freedoms that Freddie gave us. But that's why he called those 11 p.m. meetings. Hell, on a lot of nights, I was already in bed asleep. I'd have to get up and go to the meeting <laughs> and then go back in. And there was the odd night that I went back out to maybe have another beer before uh, before I went to bed. But, yeah, I mean, between Freddie Shiro and, and Bobby Clark, um, Bobby Clark, and, and obviously I – never played pro football or baseball or basketball and I didn't play on every hockey team but I would put Bobby Clark our captain um, I would stack him up against any leader in any sport ever he was unbelievable and, and, and as a guy in his early 20s he was so dynamic in the sense that Clarkie knew what was right. He knew what was wrong. He knew what was required of every athlete on our team to be able to win. And he was not afraid to have the difficult conversations sometimes, one-on-one. He would never embarrass anybody. But if he needed to call you out, he would come right to you and say, I want to talk to you and actually have a difficulty. We need more from you. You can give this team more. What's going on? You know why? Listen, you can work harder. You can do this. That that is the number one most difficult thing that leaders of any age. I see people in the corporate world that have lofty leadership titles that still are afraid because of that gorge. It's that, that resistance, that thing that's in the gorge pushing back. Having that difficult conversation is one of the most most avoided things that leaders have to get around. And I tell the story in the book. Did you appreciate the story about Bobby Clark coming in and talking to me when I was injured? That, that was the series? next, Bill, that was the next thing I was getting right into. And I was going to say, because I thought how he handled that was very good. Now, you said, and, I, and I'm going to let you tell the story, but you said in the book that other people years later said, well, he kind of tricked you, kind of manipulated you into getting yourself prepared. me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I didn't think so. You no. tell the story. Please tell the story. Yeah, well, first of all, I talk to people about the difference between pulling people and pushing people. Pushing is, you know, yelling, screaming, being sarcastic, criticizing, embarrassing in public, punishing just because you, are, you have the authority to do that. Pulling is helping people feel that they're vital to the outcome. And, and Dwight Eisenhower, 34th president and five-star general, one of the most revered leaders everywhere, any, anywhere and, and ever, used to use this profound example of pulling people. He'd take a, about a, a piece of string about three feet long, he'd put it on a table, and he'd say, watch, when I pull this, it will follow me wherever I go. But when I push this, it will go nowhere at all. He said, it's just that way when you're talking about leading people. So Bobby Clark made me feel vital to the outcome. You know, the, the two games that I described in Boston in that series, I didn't play. I was in a cast from my groin to my ankle because I had a partially torn medial collateral ligament on my left leg, and that's how they treated it then. I was supposed to be in the cast for two more weeks. I did golf, by the way, with the cast <laughs> on. And, it, and you know what? My slice kind of disappeared. It was pretty good. So I, I went back after those first two games, and I, I went right to the doctor's office, and I demanded that he take the cast off because I wanted to try to play. Well, it was I was way premature. Couldn't walk. I had to have crutches. I tried to skate the next day that was game three. I couldn't. The off day between day, games three and four, I didn't even bother skating, nor, nor on game four day. I went to the, to the rink, to the spectrum, and I got into the whirlpool just to try to get 90 degrees of flexibility back into my left leg. And Bobby Clark came in and sat down beside me in the whirlpool. And he said, not in the whirlpool, he was, he was beside the whirlpool, I was in it. And 
he said, how is it? And I said, you know what, Clark, it's, it's not really good. And he said, well, look, he said, I, whenever you're ready to come back, I just want you to know, I'm not sure we can win this thing without you. He said, you do a lot of things for us. And he said, we've got other guys that are injured. Bob Kelly, Gary Dornhofer, and Barry Ashby were all injured more seriously than I was. There was no chance of them playing. So we had minor leaguers playing. And he said, the minor leaguers can't do what you can do, even if it's just killing penalties. He said, don't do anything to hurt your career. But I'm, I don't know if we can win this without you. So the sooner you can make it back, the better off we're all going to be. And he got up and he, and he left. And he was very calm and he was very nurturing. And he made me help me feel vital to the outcome. I jumped out of the whirlpool. My wheels were spinning. And I said to our trainer, Frank Lewis, I said, Frank, I jumped up on the training table kind of awkwardly and said, shave my leg, tape me up. And I went out and took the warm up. And, and I thought I was skating around with two neon signs, one on my back that said big neon signs that said <laughs> one-legged man, and one right on my knee that kept flashing going, hit me here, hit me here, hit me here. And I, 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 I felt like I was still a cripple skating around in warm-up, and I limped off the ice and went up the tunnel, and there was our trainer, Frank Lewis, standing there, and he looked me right in the eyes. He said, can you play? And my brain screamed, not a chance. And my lips went... Yes. And I played sparingly in game four. I played game five. I got our only goal in a 5-1 loss, the stinker. None of us was very good. And then I went on to game six. And I look back, and I've even had, even had a couple of teammates say that they thought I was our best player in game six. And I, I got news for everybody. I most likely would not have even been in the lineup in game six or game five. And I absolutely would not have been in the lineup in game four unless Bobby Clark had made me, made me feel vital to the outcome. That's what everybody in every job wants to, to understand that their contribution is important. And I tell audiences all the time, if you want your people to do important work, convince them that their work is important. And that's what Bobby Clark did. And I, it's one of the most meaningful things that's ever happened to me in my life. And I, 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 I talk to Bobby Clark with such reverence and about him with such reverence because I'm not sure I would have gotten my first Stanley Cup ring or been able to, I probably would have gotten a ring, but wouldn't have felt like I was a big part of it unless Bobby Clark had made me feel that way. But Bill, I'm going to tell you something. You, you, you took it from me, but I'm going to say it again because it's such an important statement to make. If you want people to do important work, convince them that their work is important. And it's easy. I challenge audiences, John, I say, listen, right. find somebody in your office that's in a back room. Find somebody in the IT department. Find somebody in bookkeeping. Find somebody that never sees the light of day or gets the credit that a salesperson does or the big, you know, the big guns up front that get all of the credit. And go and tell them that you can't do what you do without them. And you're very important to us. And I know you probably don't hear it very often, but thanks for being a teammate of mine because you're important here too. You know how hard that person will work? You know what you'll get from them for at least another month or maybe even two months? Lots. An awful lot. Bill, that's my personal philosophy when it comes to business or anything I chase in life as well. Being in sales and marketing and going and putting together contracts and working on big deals all these years that I've been doing, I'm not doing it alone. I'm just the front man. Right. There are people behind me that make it happen. I'm just out there presenting it, setting the table, so to speak. Right. And then I let the rest come. Even here doing this show, I have my producer, Bryn McHenry. She's here. She's doing the behind-the-scenes stuff that makes this interview flow better than it would if it was probably just me working the board. So everyone has a place yep. 
in business, in sports, in life, I think it's a matter of finding where you belong and then tapping into that special skill or whatever it is you bring to the table. But I think good leaders, good leaders now, aren't jealous people. They can well, walk away and they can say, hey, that person deserves the glory today. That's well, hard to find. It's hard to find unless it's explained to people. When I get finished with an audience and they understand the difference between being an energy source and an energy vampire for people around you, when they understand the difference between taking and giving, a taker, and I tell people this, and I said, I know some of you fit into this category. I don't know which of you are in this category, but a taker says to himself or herself, what's in this for me? And a giver says, and I said, most of you are givers. I know that already. I don't know which of you are givers. But a giver asks himself or herself a very simple question. What can I do to improve your quality of life? Whether it's the person you work for, whether it's the person that works for you, whether it's a teammate. If you handed somebody a business card, John, and you were in sales, and the back of it said, my mission is to improve your quality of life. If I'm not doing that, please tell me and you really were, were willing to deliver that. Oh my gosh, how different, instead of how can I make this sale because I'm gonna get this much commission from that sale. If you go through life saying to yourself, I'm gonna be a giver, I'm going to try to improve the quality of life of those around me, then you walk into that back room and you say your work is important. Then you tell the person beside you, you know, I saw that project that you worked on. It worked out really well, congratulations. That was really important to our department, way to go. That, that's big. If you pull people by helping them feel that they're vital. So, yeah, those principles are pretty near and dear to my heart. And guess what? Uh, am I the perfect leader? I'm the first one to admit I screw it up. I still screw it up sometimes. And I go, no, that wasn't right. And we'll talk about that. you, you, you got to screw up later in the book. That's pretty big, I thought, but I loved how you handle it. And I'm going to throw one back at you. I know you read Zig Ziglar's books yep. on sales. I like, I've like. always quoted what he has said in this one book I read years ago. The more people you help get what they want and need, the better chance you have of getting what you want and need. Yes, sir. There you go. We're talking to Bill Clement today. We're talking about his book, Everyday Leadership. We'll be back in a few moments. SafeHuntingPA.com is your guide to safe, successful hunting in Pennsylvania. Small game hunters are heading afield, and the Game Commission urges these safe... Radio PA and the Pennsylvania Game Commission have teamed up to provide hunters with the latest information on archery, firearms, tree stands, small game, and much more. If it's about hunting in Pennsylvania, it's at SafeHuntingPA.com. Keep your firearm pointed in a safe direction. SafeHuntingPA.com. Brought to you by Ram Trucks. Guts. Glory. Ram. As our world becomes more globally competitive, our students need quality teachers and schools to be successful. However, they also need the proper supplies, which can be an expense some families just can't afford. That's why Edward Jones is participating in our local school supplies donation program. There's nothing more valuable than a quality education. With your help and the help of other communities around the country, we can help ensure our children have the supplies they need to begin 
in or continue their learning and development. You can help too. Just drop off anything from pens and paper to lunchboxes and book bags at Helen Seamus' branch office at 2928 Conestoga Road in Ludwig's Corner from July 23rd to September 30th. Edward Jones, Making Sense of Investing, member SIPC. Safe Hunting PA in a minute. Brought to you by Ram. If you're a hunter, the 2012 Ram Outdoorsman is the truck for you. It's fully equipped to keep you going strong from sunup to sundown with available custom lighting and towing packages. An AC power outlet, an exclusive available Ram Box cargo management system. Plus, with aggressive LT all-terrain tire treads, Ram Outdoorsman is the ultimate hunting tool. Ram Outdoorsman and Ram Box are registered trademarks of Chrysler Group, LLC. Guts. Glory. Ram. Autumn means archery hunting season, and the Pennsylvania Game Commission urges hunters to consider these safety tips. Make sure someone knows where you're hunting and when you expect to return. Pack a cell phone, whistle, and other survival gear for emergencies. Carry broadhead-tipped arrows in a protective quiver, and never walk with a knocked arrow or bolt. Keep crossbows pointed in a safe direction, and keep your thumb and fingers away from the string. For more information, visit safehuntingpa.com. Hi, this is Ree Drummond, also known as the Pioneer Woman for WCHE Radio 1520 AM. Welcome back to Life Unedited. Today, my guest is Bill Clement. We are talking about his book, Everyday Leadership, Crossing Gorges on Tightropes to Success. Bill, uh, before we took the break there, I wanted to ask you a question, and I'm curious about this. When the Flyers won the first cup, and I want to you know, kind of just concentrate on the first cup. Right. The fans spill onto the ice. Right. The place is crazy. Now, I know it doesn't happen anymore. It's looked down upon for the fans to do that. But in my opinion, when I see the old footage and I see all the fans sliding around the ice and you guys trying to get the cup through them, for some reason I feel closer to the situation than I would just watching it kind of sanitized the way it is today. Uh, if you, you know, from a fan standpoint, yeah, from a fan I'm, standpoint, yeah, I'm sure you feel that way. I, I have to tell you that that most of us on the ice were really resentful and upset about that because there were so many fans we couldn't get to one another, and and the the greatest emotion you feel when you win a championship is love for the people that you've just accomplished this most incredibly difficult challenge with. I mean, it's hard. And fans were grabbing us and it's like, who the hell are these people? Yeah. Where do they come from? You know, and we were we were taking people and throwing them down on the ice saying, get out of the way. <laughs> what are you doing? Because, it, and we really felt, you know, and reflecting, and I've talked to most of the guys, we felt kind of robbed of a of an incredibly golden, precious, meaningful moment. And that's that moment when here comes the Stanley Cup and we're all together and we can hug one another and we can, and all of a sudden we're hugging one another and there are 300 other people that we don't know that are involved in the party. You know, like <laughs> who the hell invited them to the party? We, you know, and, and as once we reflect, the Philadelphia fans are, are fantastic. There are no fans better than no, Philly fans. I agree with that 100%. But at that time, at that particular snapshot in time, it was an intrusion. That's and the I don't way think, I can say it. I love the fans yeah. in Philly, but at that moment, it was like, not now, please. I, I, I don't think the fan 
thinks that way. Uh, no, no, no. Because oh, no. we're part of it. We feel... Oh, and you were, yeah. and everybody was, John. And I, I get that yeah. part. Believe me, I really get that part. I'm giving everybody the perspective yeah. from the athlete. And I understand completely where you're coming you know? from, too. Yeah, I mean, and listen, looking back, would I have changed anything? No. No. I Believe me. We got over it pretty quick. We started drinking <laughs> champagne out of the Stanley Cup about 10 minutes after everybody poured on the ice, so we got over it pretty quick. Well, then you guys get out on the parade route the next day, 2 million people. I love some of the stories you tell. Bernie oh. Perron's story is the best. I've heard that before about having to use uh, some woman's bathroom in South Philly. <laughs> no, but the punchline in that is that I had the parade. I was on the back float. Yeah, you. I had to go. I jumped off, went to a service station. They gave me the key. When I came out, the parade had kept going. Two cops, they, they, they formed a flying whip with their billy clubs. I grabbed the back of their belts, and they, we finally caught up, and they, I stood on one of their billy clubs. They hoisted me up onto the float. No sooner did I sit down, but the parade stopped. Bernie had to go. All of a sudden, stairs come down out of the front float. <laughs> the seas part. He walks out of this little row house. This lady welcomes him in, and he relieves himself in a nice bathroom, you know, after I had run back from the service station. And I jokingly say that I have this recurring nightmare where, where, where people are throwing coins into this bronze toilet in South Philly that is now a shrine to Bernie Perron, and and I'm trying to get back to the trying to go to the bathroom in the service station, and the service station attendant won't believe that I'm Bill Clement that just won a Stanley Cup. I it, it was a definitely again I was a little kid seven eight nine, definitely a wild time. You, you guys were all Canadians. You coming to by the a way, city. By you the know. way, we were, in '75, John, we were the last team to win a Stanley Cup with an all-Canadian roster, 1975. I think I read that somewhere. Yep. I think I read that somewhere. That's right. You guys were the last ones with the all-Canadian roster to win uh -huh. a Stanley Cup. You know, looking back on those days, it really set the tone for the rest of the Philadelphia sports teams. You guys really pulled off a miracle there. It was the most unusual relationship of, I think, a team and a, and a fan base ever created. Right. I mean, Canadians... Yeah. Playing hockey in Philadelphia, mm -hmm. uh, it just you know looking back in that time period, it would not you know just would not have you know settled in someone's brain and went yeah that makes sense. Well, it was but never it called this. It wasn't called the City of Champions. Oh, then. definitely not back then. And, and, and to a great degree, it isn't now. But the, the city was so hungry for a champion, and we delivered a blue collar kind of game to everybody. That's easy to. It, we were sticky. You know, we're easy to identify with, easy to grab onto. And that love affair, you know, John, when, when our guys get together, it is amazing, the love. And we have it for the fans, too. At an alumni event, when people know we're going to be there, or at the Flyers Wives, Fight for Lives Carnival, that love affair still exists. I mean, we're over the hill, man. And I'll tell you what, everybody still remembers us, so it's quite remarkable. But the two Stanley Cups I won here is, is part of the reason that I was driven so hard after I retired. I filed corporate and personal bankruptcy within yeah. two and a half years of my retirement. But that's Got not unusual, Bill. <laughs> no, I don't mean to cut you off. No. That's not unusual for a professional athlete. No, but within, I sunk, yeah, I sunk all my years. money into a restaurant franchising business and other people's money. I yes. lost their money, all of my money. I filed corporate and personal bankruptcy. I had no job, no training, no college degree, and no career in front of me. That is when I started saying to myself, I'd better figure out how this success thing really works. And the two Stanley Cups were a huge part of me building a foundation of how I planned on moving forward through life. So they were huge. And the failure, uh, without question, if I had not failed so dismally after hockey, 
I would not have been able to be so successful. It, I was forced so far out of my comfort zone, onto the tightrope so many times, trying to make it as in an acting career, in another business career, in a broadcasting career. I kept having to get out on the tightrope. And you know the real message I want to deliver to people is, you know, the tightrope is not as scary as you think once you step out on it. Because even when you fall, you will realize most people don't even know you've fallen off it. It's an emotional thing. And if you hit the bottom of the gorge, it's not that hard. You're not going to break bones. You drag yourself up somehow from the bottom of the gorge, dust yourself off, and get back on the tightrope. We're all capable of getting to the other side, and we all come to these tightropes. So the two Stanley Cups, without question, as you point out, were a major, a major piece to me being able to go back and go, wait a minute, how do you be successful? How does this thing really work? And yes. it really helped. But your character was already there. And I'm going to cite yeah, an example yeah, here. I guess. I'm going to cite an example of a character. Again, I could relate to it. And I actually stopped reading the book a few times in bed with my wife and looked over and go, I get this man. When you had to file for bankruptcy and had to give up your business, you owed people money, obviously. And oh, bankruptcy yeah. will allow that to be discharged or pennies on the dollar. Right. You called up one of your suppliers. Mm -hmm. You didn't avoid him. You called him. You explained the circumstances, and you did everything you could to help him get as much money back on his dollar that he invested. Right. Compared to just walking away, which you were legally allowed to do. Yeah, yeah. We but you held your the, ground. We converted equipment from a from a, a loan to a lease, and he took it so so that he basically owned the equipment, so that he wouldn't lose it. And that and, was and I'm and I'm not just saying that in order to like you know kiss your ass here. That's impressive. Because the bankruptcy laws allow you to walk away and not take responsibility. Right. How many corporations, how many Donald Trumps and people along those lines utilize that, that law to their advantage right. and never have to face the people that they owe? You took that step and did that. And another thing I found impressive, you get into broadcasting. Uh, you know, not an easy thing to do, be calling a hockey game. I call football games. I can't imagine calling a hockey game. And... You have a kind of a little joking one night with uh, Gary Thorne, who was, I think, one of the greatest hockey announcers ever. Oh, absolutely. And you guys kind of, he, he, you made a joke about a mispronouncing, uh, mispronunciation of a name. Yep. He kind of took it personal. Right. And you learned right then and there, hey, you know, communication and maybe, you know, I, there's certain times and places I can and cannot joke. I thought that you were very honest in the book. I, uh, that's and that's the way I speak, and that's the way I live. If somebody wants to know what's inside my chest or my heart, all they have to do is ask. And, and Gary and I still do the EA Sports game together. Yes, you do. I have those and, things. <laughs> yeah, and, and we move past that. But I, I realize that I have to be I have to be sometimes careful that there are people that have sensitivities. And I learned from an old blues singer in the South many years ago that he said to me he was from Alabama. His name was Jerome Olds, and he wasn't that old at the time. But he said, you know what he said. My, my grandma used, used to tell me, said, if I ever hurt anybody else's feelings or make them angry or really get under their skin, she said, picture it like in driving a nail into a tree. And he said, okay, I got that. And she said, and then if you apologize and you patch things up, think of it as pulling the nail out of the tree. And he thought, you know, that's how you make it right, right? You go back to them, you try yeah. to make it right, and then everybody's back to square one. And she said, but always remember, once you pull the nail out of the tree... The hole is still in the tree. 
Bill, the only regret I have about this interview is it has to end, and there's so many things I didn't get a chance to get to. But I do want to promote the book one last time, Bill Clement, Everyday Leadership, Crossing Gorges on Tight Ropes to Success. Bill, tell us how to get a copy of the book and where to find you to do, to, to do a personal uh, uh, speaking engagement. Right. Uh, well, they can do that at the website, BillClement.com. All of my contact information is there, and people can add their thumbnails of a lot of the things that I do on stage, although there's much more that I don't have posted yet. But at BillClement.com, the book is available, and I will personalize it and sign it. Uh, that's, that's available through my website, or Amazon.com is always another avenue. Bill, thank you so much. I'll be in contact with you. John, thank you a million. This went by like that for me, too, so if you want to do it again someday, let me know. You got it, brother. Thanks a okay, lot. Buddy. Bye-bye.